And we're going to be talking about Galatians 3. We're going to start in verse 6 this morning. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 14. And the title of today's message is A Radical Faith. Well, just about every year, I have a reoccurring dream. I'm back in high school. Oh yeah, back in high school. And it's finals time. But there's only one problem. I haven't been to class for the entire year, okay? And I have no idea what is gonna be on the test. I haven't studied. Now, if you know me, I, I'm really not that smart. I just study hard, but I, I have no idea what to study. I haven't been to class. And it's time to take the final exam. And there is a sense of desperation and panic in my soul. I know I've been delinquent. I don't know why I haven't been to class, but I'm just convinced that I will not make the grade and pass the class. Talk about performance anxiety. Talk about a nightmare. I've had this dream at least a dozen of times. Without going into any theology of dreams, okay, or deep analysis this morning, let me be the first to admit, I got issues, okay? (laughs) I mean, why is this dream? Why does this dream keep coming to me? But you know what? I don't think that I'm alone here. I don't think I'm alone, especially when it comes to the issue of performance, anxiety, and our relationship with God. How do I know that? Well, first of all, I've talked to many of you, and I realize I'm not alone. But you see this nightmare that I described, this reoccurring dream, which I described? You know what? The Galatians in our text today, they're living that nightmare. In fact, Paul calls them bewitched. For they have lost their focus on Christ and their faith has shifted away from Christ onto their own works, onto the works of the law, onto their own performance as a way, as a basis for their acceptance in Christ. Now, it's not necessarily if you had the opportunity to talk to the Galatians to whom Paul is writing, that they would have verbally denied that salvation comes by grace through faith, faith in Christ. But it was something else they felt was needed to cement their relationship with God. You know what I'm talking about? Some of their experience they needed to do in order to experience God's blessing and to make the grade. So Paul asks, he asks this question in Galatians 3, which Al preached last week. He asked this, 3.3 of Galatians, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh. In other words, Galatians, having begun a supernatural life that comes through faith in Jesus, are you now turning aside to deeds of the flesh, works of the law, to somehow 
you know, seal the deal to justify yourself before God. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing. If you haven't noticed, he's angry. He's incensed. And frankly, as I read this, you know what? It, it troubles me. It troubles me because I see that same performance mentality in myself way too often. In church, it's dangerous. Like we could say it's deadly. It's a false gospel. And it's a faith killer. In today's passage, God is wanting to obliterate. Obliterate this performance mentality in us. As he calls us to live a radical faith in him. And that's my main theme of this morning from Galatians 3. We'll put it up there. Live a radical life of faith. Live by faith from beginning to end. What this radical life of faith looks like, we're going to talk about it in a few moments. But first, let's pray. Well, Lord, we do ask, as we've already prayed, as we've already sung this morning, that you would show us Christ, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, it says in this very passage, verse five of Galatians three, that Lord, salvation comes from hearing, hearing your word, hearing with faith. So Lord, we're asking that we would hear this morning in spirit that you would us faith, faith to believe the words that you have preserved and given us here in this Bible. They're words for us this morning. And I pray as we hear that there would be faith that would rise up like spiritual dynamite that would be a catalyst for us to go live the lives which you've called us to. But Lord, we're asking that you would do that work, that you would use your word this morning to do that. Amen. Amen. Well, with that, let us read our passage, Galatians 3. I'm going to start with verse 5 and go through the remainder of the passage. Verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God And it was credited, excuse me, counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised 
spirit through faith. Well, church, there's a lot going on in that passage, no doubt. But we're going to work through it and trust that God's going to give us grace to do so with meaning and application to our lives. And I believe there is much this morning. You see, this passage really is a continuation. If you were here last week, Al preached a really good message on Galatians 3, 1 through 5. This is a continuation of that, where Paul is showing that salvation, your salvation, is by grace through faith, not by living under the law, the performance of the law. But last week, Paul used a different argument. He says, Galatians, you know this. You know that the Spirit, by His grace, has done a work in your life. He has changed you from the inside out. He has transformed you. You have a testimony. That was by grace through faith. What are you thinking? So he's appealing to their personal testament, what they know to be true, what they have experienced with the reception of the Spirit upon salvation and this changed life. You didn't do that. That was God at work in you. You believed he did it. But now Paul's turning to a different argument. He's turning to Scripture and particularly to the example of Abraham. That leads to the first point. Look at Abraham. Why does Paul reference Abraham here? A guy that lived 2,000 years ago, prior to the time when Galatians was written. Well, a big reason is that Abraham is the revered father of the Jews, right? These false teachers who were infiltrating the church in Galatia, who were spreading this false gospel, were Jews, and they prided themselves in being children of Abraham. And they were calling the Galatian, the Galatian Gentiles, to be circumcised, to receive the mark of circumcision. Why? That they too would truly belong to the children of God and be fully accepted. That they would pass the test, so to speak. And what Paul is doing, mind you, Paul is a fellow Jew. He's about to put the record straight. So you want to talk about Abraham? Let's talk about Abraham. In fact, the story and example of Abraham proves my point that justification is by grace through faith alone. So let's go there. And that's what he does. In verse 6 of our passage, Paul quotes Genesis 15, 6, saying that Abraham, quote, believed God and was counted as righteousness. Abraham believed God. What did Abraham believe in the first place? Well, I want to read the verse prior to Galatians, right? 15, 6, verse 5, right in front of it. You just listen to it. This is what Abraham believed. God came to Abraham. Says, and he, God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look toward the heaven. Number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. In taking God at his word, Abraham was believing the promise that yes, he would have a really big family, okay? Kids and a lot of grandkids and great-grandkids. But there's much more to it than just that. For we learn in verse seven of our passage today, look at it, that Abraham wasn't just believing he would have lots and lots of grandkids and a huge family. He was believing, this is fascinating, he was actually believing The gospel, the gospel, that was preached to him. Look at verse seven. In him, right? In him is Abraham. 
and presumably his offspring, what? All the nations would be blessed. Paul is quoting an amazing promise that God gave to Abram when he first called him back in Genesis 12, verse 3. So let's put it together. Abraham believed God. What did he believe? That he would have lots of offspring, okay? As numerous as the stars or elsewhere, the sand and the seashore. And through his offspring, all the nations would be blessed. Okay, we're getting somewhere, but how would this blessing happen? Oh, we're told a little later on. From his many offspring of Abraham, from the Jewish people, would come one offspring, who is Jesus Christ, who would be a blessing to the nations. It's what we read just a few verses later. We're not going to go there, but just jot down verse 16, okay? And Abraham believed this. Wait a sec. He didn't know about Jesus. Well, you're right. He didn't know about Jesus per se. He wasn't to come for another 2,000 years. But he believed in the promise that through his offspring, all the nations would be blessed. That this promised seed would come. It's a blessing to the nations. And church, we're here today because we are recipients. We are heirs of that promise by faith. You know that. Kyle mentioned it early when he prayed. We have many nations represented right here at Palm Vista in our small church. If we're in Christ and you are in Christ, we have received the promise blessing of Jesus Christ. And we received it by believing in Christ Jesus, who he is and what he came to do in dying on the cross in our place for us. We entered into salvation by believing in this promised seed, Jesus, just as Abraham did. Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham, in other words, was considered right with God, justified, saved, because he believed. And this is the key. He was counted righteous when? Before he was circumcised. Before the law, that is the Mosaic law, even existed. In fact, 430 years prior. Excuse me. He lived prior to the law even coming. It wasn't the law that justified him. It wasn't works of the law. It didn't even exist. Because he believed in God's promises. It's what we see in Galatians 3.17. So much here. I don't have time to go into detail. I just want you to hear it. You meant to jot it down. Abraham was justified by grace through faith, just as we are, church. He was saved just as we are. He believed in the coming Jesus Christ. We as new covenant believers believe in Jesus Christ who has come and who will return. But it's all by faith. Salvation has always been by faith. From beginning to end. The Old Testament as well as the New. But the false teachers, you see, they didn't accept that. Now they may have conceded. Okay, Paul, you, okay. Okay, I'll concede that. Abraham was considered righteous before he was circumcised, got the seal of the covenant, before the law came. But you know what? You see, Abraham was justified because of his character, because of his performance, because of his proven character. That's why Abraham was justified. 
That's why he was considered right with God. Oh, this is so important, church. As the ESV study Bible succinctly states, we'll put it up there for you. Before Abram has proved himself righteous by his deeds, he is counted as righteous because of his faith. Church, don't confuse the order and try to smuggle in Abraham's performance as the basis of his salvation. And don't do it for yours either. Listen, for all we know, listen, Abraham, back then Abram, was a happy, retired pagan living at Club Haran. Okay, Haran was in south, central, southeastern Turkey. When God called him to pack his bags and go to an unknown land. That's who he was. We're not told. God just shows him. Why Abraham of all the people and all the nations? I don't know. We're not told. God just chose him. He didn't just choose him. He says, I'm going to bless you. And you're not even going to believe it. You don't even have the mind to comprehend how I'm going to bless you. You don't even know why. But tell me, I'm going to do it. And God chose Abraham. There wasn't even some mutual agreement or pact. At least not in Genesis 15. Back then you went into a pact. You made a promise agreement called a covenant. Well, this covenant that God enacted to show, yes, Abraham, I'm going to do this. It was all God. When God was enacting the covenant that's promised to Abraham, you know what Abraham was doing? He was sleeping. He was sleeping. Check it out, Genesis 15. We're just told that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't believe, prove himself to the Lord first and then God declared him righteous. No, he first believed in the Lord and his promises his radical promises and his justification was declared on this basis alone. His faith was radical, but it wasn't radical because we can do this often with the saints of old. Like he was some like super saint of faith. I mean, if you read the story of Abraham, he was a very fallible creature like you and me. Yeah, he made a lot of of stupid things. All right. Yeah, he was tested. He passed the test several points, but that wasn't the basis of him declared righteous. He was radical because the promises made to him were radical, and he believed them. He believed that God is trustworthy. And he knew, in the end, that he could not, in himself, bring about the promises of God as much as as he was prone to try. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 4, verse 18 to 22. We're going to put it up here on the screen. There it is. Oh, this is a great passage. Listen to this. In hope, he, that's Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. I love this. Fully convinced that God was able to do 
what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You catch the verbiage early on there? In hope, Abraham believed against hope. That makes no sense, but it makes like every sense. I think we can relate, can't we, church? In hope, he believed against hope. It's like, Lord, I believe. Help me to believe. Yeah, what are those statements? You see, Abraham had no human reason to think that God would give him a child, a descendant, let alone tons of descendants, as numerous as the stars, when he was 100 years old and his wife was barren at age 90. That was ridiculous. That was crazy. But he was convinced. He was convinced that God would do what he said he would do, what he promised. So much that Abram bore the name Abraham, to which we refer to him. Do you know what that means? Abraham means a father of a multitude. Father of a multitude. Wow. Now, that's what people would have heard when he said his name. Hi, I'm the father of a multitude. That would make for some rather awkward cocktail parties in Canaan, you know? Hey, hi, my name is uh, Father of Multitudes. Wow, that's pretty impressive. You must have a large family, you father of multitude. How many kids do you got? None. <laughs> You're like, okay. Talk about a conversational stopper, okay? Like, this guy's crazy. Crazy. And he must have been tempted, at least, right, to feel like God was mocking him with this name, Abraham, father of multitudes. Like a cruel tease of sorts. But church, God wasn't. And neither is he mocking you with his gospel promises of eternal life and an eternal inheritance in him. Friends, don't mock God and think that you can earn God's blessing and promises. The point is this. Believe what he has revealed and throw yourself on God in full dependence and faith. I love the words of commentator R. Alan Cole on the screen. Abraham entered into his particular blessing by realizing that he could do nothing himself, by confessing the fact to God, confessing and simply agreeing, God, I can't do it. And by throwing himself on God, counting on God to do that which he could not do. That is the paradox of faith, as true for us as for Abraham. We read in verse 7 and verse 9 of our text. He speaks of those of faith. Those of faith. What does that mean? That could be, I think, interpreted, and I think if it's interpreted this way, it captures the true sense. In other words, those who rely on faith. Those who rely on faith. I.e., those who throw themselves on God. They are the ones who are the true sons of Abraham. Verse 7, they are the ones who are truly blessed. Verse 9, when Paul says back in verse 7, know then that it's those of faith, those who rely on faith, who are the sons of Abraham, that's an imperative command. You better know. But it could also be translated second person. You do know. 
You know this. Galatians, you know this to be true. What has happened? He's appealing to the Galatians, to their hearts. They had lost sight of Christ, of saving faith. And that leads to our second point. It leads us to Jesus. When Paul said, those who rely on faith are blessed, he's setting up a direct contrast in verse 10. Look at it. With those who rely on works of the law and are cursed. We read, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Those who fail to throw themselves on Jesus and radical dependence and faith and rely on their own works to somehow commend themselves to God and to achieve God's promised blessings are cursed. What do you mean cursed? It means they're condemned by God. Why? Well, Paul now moves away from Abraham and he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26. This verse comes as a summation of all the curses that are to come to those who do not completely fulfill the law and do the law. The Mosaic law, not just the Ten Commandments, but all the regulations and rules that surrounded them as well that were flushed out in Jewish law and society. See, once again, Paul is going to the law. He's actually going right to the Judaizers, the false teachers. He's meeting them on their own ground. He goes, you want to talk about the law? We talked about Abraham, right? Let's talk about the law now. You're fixated on this law, living under the law. You want to live under the law? You know Israel's history. Israel's history is a train wreck of unbelief, okay? And testimony to God's mercy, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. It's not... You know that Israel couldn't fulfill all these laws and you can't either. You know it by personal experience. And church, we know it. We know it. We, we can't fulfill the perfect law of God. We can't meet his perfect standard. We know we're going to fall short. Scripture tells us that time and time again, but we have personally experienced it as well. We can't do it. So Paul, having quoted the Pentateuch Genesis, having now quoted the law, He just keeps going, man. Remember, hearing with faith, hearing scripture by faith, right? Now he quotes the prophets, Habakkuk, to drive his point home. He says this in verse 11, quoting the words of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous. It's in the Old Testament. I'm not making this up. This isn't just an Abraham thing. This is a God thing. If you insist on living under the law as opposed by faith, You will live and die by the law's very consequences and demands. You'll be condemned. You'll be a cursed slave to the law. And now we come to glorious verse 13. And Paul's going to weave all this teaching together. Hang with me. I realize this has been a lot of dense argumentation. We've been steamrolling through it, okay? Heavy theology. Don't get lost. We're going to slow down, okay? Because we're coming to Jesus. So let's slow down. I'm going to slow down. I'm going to read the final two verses. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone 
who was hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit. How? Through faith. That was Paul's point last week. Christ redeemed us. When I say us, I'm thinking everyone here who has placed their saving faith in Christ Jesus. And if you have not, oh, you're living and breathing, you're here. And I'm so glad you're here. You too can place that same faith in Christ and experience the true blessing of Christ. Christ redeemed us. Former cursed slaves of the law. But how do you do it? By becoming a curse for us. By hanging on a tree. That's a reference to the cross. He did it in our place. He took the curse of the law upon himself. Due to our disobedience, due to our sin, due to our inability to fulfill the law. It's Christ's performance for us. It's not our performance for Christ, which is the issue. If we're going to make the Christian life about performance, let's make it about performance. But let's make it about the performance of Christ, what he has done for us. The one who took our failing grade and gave us his perfect grade and marks of righteousness. He did it willingly so that we would receive the blessing of Abraham rather than the curse of the law. What is this blessing? I think it'd be a number of things, but most clearly, certainly what Paul's getting at in our final verse is this. That blessing is the promised Holy Spirit. The Galatians thought that it was the works of the law. It was circumcision, as I'll find out next week, which secured their salvation, or at least offered that security of salvation that sealed the deal, so to speak. Oh, but we know better, don't we, church? It was Christ who secured our salvation by the blood he shed on the Christ. And catch this. And he sealed our salvation, how? By giving us his spirit. When we were generated, when we were saved, we, at that instant point in time, received the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, 2 Corinthians 1, as well as I think in Ephesians 1, speaks the Spirit as what? A seal and a guarantee of our salvation. Christ secured it. He gave us his Spirit to secure, to seal our salvation, that we know that we belong to him. That's the reason why Paul comes back to the Holy Spirit again. It's the Holy Spirit who was a distinguishing mark of the Christian. Not circumcision. But I believe there's something else going on here when Paul mentions the blessing of the Holy Spirit. He's addressing a fundamental concern. I think you have it. I think I have it. It's a question that pops up in our mind. Do I really belong? Do I really belong to God? Am I really his? Friends, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, you belong. You're part of his forever family. You're God's children. You're his very heirs. You don't have to become Jewish. As the Galatians are tempted to think, you don't have to become anyone who you're not. 
You don't have to perform any longer. You need to come to Jesus by faith. And he's asking you to live by that same faith in God's gospel promises. So if you're here this morning and your faith doesn't seem too radical, it doesn't seem fresh, right? Our sermon series, Fresh Faith, I can't say it is. Could it be that you're not trusting God for much? Listen to this. It's hard to trust God when you're all wrapped up in performing for God. Let me say it again. It's really hard to trust God when you're all wrapped up in performing for God. When performing for God, either to win his approval or somehow to keep his approval in your life. Friends, if we're doing this, it can manifest itself manifest itself in a variety of ways. I want to mention a couple ways in closing this morning. Number one, this is you. You can be tempted just to play it safe. What do I mean by playing it safe? Well, if you're under performance, life becomes more about just not messing up. Life becomes the Christian life about staying out of trouble. The Christian life becomes just doing the right thing. Life becomes about somehow staying, trying to stay in God's good graces, so to speak. We can do that and not even realize it. But it's all too possible, you see, to construct our lives so that we're actually doing many good Christian things and good Christian behaviors. Doing those things and yet all the while insulating our lives from actually exercising any radical faith in Jesus at all. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we can do church. I want you to come. We ought to come and gather as God's people, but we can just do church. We can just do the Christian life. We can even, this is scary, even do what's called the spiritual disciplines. We can even be faithful to read God's word, and I hope you are hearing with faith. We need that. And praying based on what you're reading, we need that. But we can do that and really not trust God for much at all. We're just playing it safe. And sometimes playing it safe means this. It means not dreaming or not dreaming much or not wanting to really dream, to let yourself just dream. Because when you do, you know what happens? There's a fear in you. This performance mentality is working in you. There's a fear. I want to dream. But if I do, I, I'm just fearful of making any big decision. I, I am. Why? Because I fear I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to make the wrong decision. I'm going to make a poor decision. I mean, what if I really mess and screw this thing up? You see what's happening? It's all about performance. It's all about you. Like if I mess things up, like if I make this decision and it's the wrong one, or I mess it up, and it's all my fault. If it's my fault, there's no grace. What are you saying? Well, if I make the right decision decision and exercise it perfectly, then there'll be grace. That's not grace. (laughs) No, grace is unmerited favor. It's what God gives you. Yes, when you do mess up, you don't deserve it. But God is gracious and kind. 
But we don't see that when we're in this performance, this cloud of performance. And I think you know, church, there's no way to live. This is bewitched thinking. If you're here this morning and you've placed your saving faith in Christ Jesus, you understand you're free. You're free to love. We'll talk about that next week. You're free to give. You're free to risk. And this is amazing. You're free to fail. You're free to look crazy doing so. Because you were freed from any joy-killing, risk-adverse performance, any attempt to try to earn God's favor and righteousness. In the words of uh, Platte Merida, that's a commentary we recommended to you, very accessible one on Galatians, we read this. When you trust God, you do things that seem crazy to the world, not because you're earning salvation, but because you believed God. When this type of faith, this radical faith in God, and his eternal promises are operating in our life, you know what? You are going to look crazy, at least in the eyes of the world. You will believe God and you will do things born of a radical faith in God and his promises that make absolutely no sense apart from a radical trust in God and his word. I call that Abraham crazy. We could call it Noah crazy for Noah's ark. We could call it Hebrews 11 crazy. Go and read that. That's crazy. We can call it Jesus crazy. Could that accusation be made of you? I ask him of myself, of me, that I'm crazy. <laughs> I'm so crazy, I trust God fully and completely. I believe his gospel promises eternal life and eternal inheritance, that I'm his and forever his and his family, and nothing can take that away. Oh, that leads to a crazy life, but a life of freedom. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I believe that God has given you passions. God has given you dreams. And may I be so bold. See, I believe that some of you have passions and some of you have dreams that you're sitting on. And there's a time to exercise patience and wisdom before making a big decision. I get that. I'm not talking about that. You're sitting on it because of fear and performance. God is calling you to act. What does act mean? I believe one thing it means is to do whatever it takes to cultivate and to fan and to flame the very gifts and passions that God has given you and put on your heart. I don't know what that means for you. That could mean going back to school. That, that could mean picking up a book and reading more about this passion and gifting that you have. It may mean meeting with another believer or several who have the similar passions and desires for God's glory to do these things. We're going to talk about this in coming weeks. I'm just priming the pump now, church, okay? I want you to ask, what am I passionate about? 
What are your dreams? How do you think you're gifted? How has God gifted you? And what may God be telling you to do now? I, I don't know where this is going to lead. As I mentioned, this, this may lead you to the far ends of the earth of the gospel. I hope it leads some of you there. I really do. That may lead you, however, to stay right here in Miami, to plant, to commit, and to grow. It may mean fostering a child, adopting a child, teaching a special needs child, advocating for the life of the unborn, for the alien immigrant or sojourner. It may mean being a radical and vocal witness right where you are. I think it does in your own occupation and job. And right where you live, in your own neighborhood. Crazy can and will look a lot of different ways. But it's a crazy that's informed by God's word and God's commission to go make disciples of all nations. The blessing of Jesus Christ, which comes by faith to all nations, it's informed by the fact that we are heirs of the promise made to Abraham. Oh, friends, in Christ Jesus, you have all the grace that you need and could ever want. You have crazy grace. You are righteous. You have God's blessing. You have God's spirit. You are part of his forever family. And nothing is going to change that. For you've been saved by grace, through faith, to live like it from beginning to end. If I could pray now as we transition to singing one last song, how rich a treasure we possess, that third song we sang, Zeke, we'll do that in just a moment. But first, just quietly, just pray. We're not done yet. We want God to minister this truth to our hearts. So let us pray. Well, Lord, we choose to believe that with hearing and faith that there is life. And we're asking that you would bring life to us this morning. For, for some, that may be regeneration, new spiritual life, born of a saving faith and trust in you, Jesus. For others, it may be bringing life to a dream that's long been dormant or even seemed dead. Because, Lord, we've given in to fear. We've realized we can't perform for you. We're going to fall short. Oh, Lord, deliver the truth of your grace to our hearts. Lord, get our eyes off our performance and get our eyes on your performance for us in Christ. And may that enliven us this morning. May we respond now as we stand and as we sing. Amen. Amen. Church, let's rise. Let us sing as application this morning in the greatness of our God.